Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Scott Sumner. Scott, welcome back to the program. Thanks for inviting me, Eric. Good to be back. So, Scott, we're, we're here to talk about your most recent book, uh, The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the Future of Monetary Policy. What do you hope that the legacy of this book is, that we're looking, you know, people, the field is looking you know, decades from now, what do we hope that the, that the impact of this book is? Well, if I guess if I could have any wish come true, it would be that this book has a similar impact uh, on opinion that Friedman and Schwartz's book had regarding the Great Depression. So there, Friedman and Schwartz's monetary history really led economists to reevaluate the role of the Fed in the Great Depression, and more specifically to believe that the Fed played a much more important and negative role than had been previously believed. So I'm making a similar argument for the Great Recession. Um, so I, I certainly don't think the book is as good as theirs or will have anywhere near the influence theirs had, but I'm certainly hoping that it would have a similar effect in terms of making people reevaluate the role of the Fed. And my other goal, I suppose, is to promote market monetarist way of thinking about monetary policy in general, which is a different framework for approaching monetary policy than some other traditional approaches like Keynesian, Austrian, even old monetarist. Yeah. So let's go through those one by one. So when you say you hope to have the same impact on the, on the uh, Great Recession that Milton Friedman had on the Great Depression, the main idea there is that in both cases, people thought that the Fed policy was was too expansionary. And, and, and you think that, you know, Friedman thought that it wasn't expansionary enough in, in depression, and it turned out that that was correct, and that you think similarly in the Great Recession that it wasn't expansionary enough, and that has turned out, you know, people more and more people are becoming uh, sympathetic to that idea. Is, is that how you'd summarize it? I, I would go much further than that. So I, I would certainly say here are a number of parallels. At the time, people thought monetary policy was expansionary in the early 1930s. Friedman and Schwartz convinced people that it was actually contractionary. I'm making the same argument. Yeah. People and, in 2008 and, and, thought policy. For, for, people don't, for people who don't know what expansionary contraction is, can you can you define that? Well, that's that's part of the problem. There's no general agreement on what the terms mean. A lot of people, I think, tend to just look at interest rates. Now, what's strange about this is you see even economists refer to interest rates when talking about monetary policy, even though our textbooks say that interest rates are not a reliable indicator. Some people look at the money supply. But again, there's a lot of debate over whether the money supply is a reliable indicator. I personally look at nominal GDP growth as my indicator of whether money is easy or tight. Since there's no general agreement, it might make more sense to talk about monetary policy being too expansionary or too contractionary relative to the targets of policy, right? So we can debate whether policy was expansionary in any or contractionary in any absolute sense, but I don't think there's much doubt that policy was too contractionary to achieve the Fed's goal of stable inflation and high employment, right? They, they undershot on both accounts. Inflation was below their target. Unemployment was very high. Uh, 
So that's one difference. Another similarity, I suppose, in my critique was that a lot of people in the 30s assumed that monetary policy had ran out of ammunition, Fed couldn't do anymore. Friedman and Schwartz argued otherwise. Again, in 2009, people were arguing that the Fed was out of ammunition, couldn't do any more. I'm arguing otherwise, they could do a lot more. Another similarity is that people thought that the Great Depression was sort of a inevitable result from a previous bout of over-exuberance, a bubble economy in the 20s, whatever you want to call it. There was, it's almost like a morality tale where you have to pay the price from your previous excesses, right? Yeah. And there was sort of this perception of the Great Recession. There was this view that there was this housing bubble and that we overexpanded and that we had to pay the price by cutting housing construction sharply and suffering a lot of unemployment. Friedman Schwartz argued that that view of things, which sometimes associated with the Austrian school of thought, they argued that view was incorrect. I'm arguing it's also incorrect for the Great Recession. Yeah. Um, so quite a few, and there's many other small points where there's similarities as well that I could point to. Those are just some of the highlights. Uh, here's one more similarity. Friedman and Schwartz argued that a little known mistake at the time was raising reserve requirements, which had the effect of causing banks to demand more reserves, which is contractionary. Myself and other market monetarists argued that a little-known mistake was instituting the payment of interest on bank reserves in late 2008. That also encouraged banks to demand more bank reserves, which is contractionary in its effect. So there's just numerous examples of similarities, except there's, of course, one big, big difference, which was the mistakes were much smaller this time around, and the recession was much milder than the Great Depression of the 30s. Yeah. And, and what you show in the book, is that the data does not support that in, in 2009, you know, like uh, that we were too expansionary and, and that we could have done uh, a, a lot more. S say, say more about what exactly we could have done. And this, this is because of the mistake of people think monetary policy doesn't work at zero, at zero bound. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, there's two things. First of all, you asked about whether policy had been too expansionary before the recession. You can certainly make a respectable, respectable argument that it was a little bit too expansionary. But that shouldn't have caused any major problems in the economy. Uh, it wasn't particularly expansionary by historical standards. As far as not having enough ammunition, there's two things to keep in mind here. First of all, people often forget that in 2008, which was the key year of the Great Recession, that's the year we plunged into the Great Recession, the Fed was not at the zero lower bound on interest rates. So they had the ability to do more even by conventional standards, conventional meaning cutting interest rates. Unconventional is the term for things like printing money, quantitative easing, that sort of thing. But even by conventional, using conventional policy tools like cutting interest rates, the Fed could have been more expansionary in 2008 and should have been more expansionary. In 2009, interest rates have fallen close to zero. There's not much you can do in terms of conventional policy of cutting interest rates. But there they could have been far more expansionary in a variety of ways using unconventional tools and also a different strategy. And that would have even been more important than the tools. So the tools are things like quantitative easing. There's almost no effective limit to how much money you can print. The strategy, though, is really more important because if you don't have the right strategy in place, then simply doing quantitative easing isn't going to have much effect. We've seen that in places like Japan. The strategy you need 
need is what's called level targeting. That's a commitment to over time come back to the previous trend line. And if you do that, you're likely to get a much stronger and quicker recovery. Now, fortunately, the Fed has recently realized that they made a mistake in the Great Recession and should have done something like level targeting. What they actually did is a little bit different, but similar. It's called average inflation targeting. That was adopted in 2020. And as a result of that, the Fed was much more expansionary this time around than in the previous Great Recession. And as a result, unemployment has fallen much more rapidly. Spending has come back much more quickly. Inflation has come back much more quickly. In fact, maybe overshot in terms of inflation. But overall, we've gotten a much better result. The economy today is much healthier than it was during the Great Recession, even with the supply shortages. And uh, that's a result of the Fed making a more determined effort to come back to the previous trend line, which they didn't do in the Great Recession. And, and, and the, what inflation are they targeting? They're targeting what's called PCE inflation, which runs a little bit below CPI inflation. I can't give you the exact figures, but I think it's been running in the, the 4 to 6% range, depending on whether you use the headline or core rate. Um, it, it runs a little bit lower than the CPI inflation rate. So it's above the Fed's 2% target. Now, part of that is intentional. During the worst of the COVID recession last year, inflation actually undershot the 2% target. So with average inflation targeting, you actually want inflation to run hot, to run above 2% to make up for that shortfall. Now, in fact, it's run even hotter than the Fed had hoped. And the reason for that is that the supply problems in the economy have been much more dramatic than almost anyone foresaw, including myself. I didn't realize you know, how much the auto industry, for instance, depended on computer chips that are in short supply because they weren't ordered in sufficient quantity. And there's port problems in port capacity, all sorts of issues, part of which are related to the recent switch from a service-oriented economy to more goods purchases. So we're really having shortages, especially in the area of production of goods and, and services are actually still somewhat depressed. Anyway, I've gotten a little ahead of the game, but I think it's important to talk about what we did right this time around to make it easier to see what we did wrong back in the Great Recession. So when I was talking about what we should be doing, a lot of people just viewed those as sort of pie in the sky, you know, theoretical ideas of an academic. But now that the Fed has actually moved quite far in that direction and gotten much better results, I think it's easier to see what we did wrong in the Great Recession. Just as what we did right in the Great Recession makes it easier to see what we did wrong in the Great Depression. So certainly I was critical of the Fed's behavior in 2008 and 9, but they were more aggressive in trying to pump up aggregate demand than the Fed of the early 1930s. And as a result, the banking crisis didn't cause nearly as much unemployment as we had in the 30s. Yeah. And, and were both the Great Depression and Great Recession uh, demand shocks, whereas, whereas yes. the most recent one is demand and supply? Yes, it, they were demand shocks in both cases. And this time around, it's the supply problems are the largest, I would say. If someone's listening to this and saying, hey, wait, I know 2008 was, was because of the housing bubble. How, how, can we, how are we minimizing that housing bubble? What would the data needed to have been for that, that to be true? And, and why is it incorrect that the housing bubble didn't lead? The, the housing bubble is a term used for two very distinct phenomena. And in both cases, it's incorrect, in my view. 
One phenomena is the high rate of housing construction in the early 2000s. But in fact, housing construction was not all that high. I mean, it was certainly a little bit above average, but it wasn't all that strong for an economy that was in the boom phase of the business cycle. Housing is a cyclical industry, and the level of housing construction in 2004, 5, 6 was not that atypical. And if you look at a relative to population, it was certainly much lower than during many times during the 20th century when we didn't have any sort of housing crisis like 2006 to 8. So housing construction levels were a little above normal, but nothing uh, particularly unusual for the boom phase of the cycle. The bigger uh, issue is housing prices. And here, obviously, prices were pretty high by historical standards, really out of line with what we observed in the 20th century. However, I do not believe it was actually a bubble. Rather, it reflected some fundamental changes in the economy that are going to lead to permanently higher housing prices in the 21st century than the 20th century. And the two most important factors are the so-called NIMBY phenomena. It's much harder to build new housing today. And in fact, remember all the discussion about how we were building too much housing? Now, if you look on the internet, most of the discussion is we're building too little housing. And that's why housing is so expensive and why young people have trouble affording houses. Well. The house prices were looked high partly because the P, the price to um, rent ratios was higher than usual, and partly because rents were pretty high. So you got to break that down into two parts. So housing can be owner occupied or it can be rental units. So housing as a whole, both rental units and owner occupied, can be expensive if we're not building enough housing. And then the price of house relative to rent can be high because interest rates are low, right? So that second factor, the price to rent ratio is very similar to what's occurring in the stock market where permanently low real interest rates are making PE ratios in the 21st century permanently higher than in the 20th century because PE ratios are related to real interest rates. So that's part of the story. That tells you why the ratio of the price of a house to rent is unusually high. But if you wanna know why both prices and rents are high, You have to look at construction. Why are we building more houses to meet these high prices? And that's because of the NIMBY policies that make it hard to build. So the combination of those two pushes up rents somewhat, but pushes up house prices even more. And it makes it look like house prices are ridiculously high. When the prices crashed during the Great Recession, a lot of people assumed that proved there was a bubble. But today we know that's probably not true for two reasons. One, The house price run-ups also occurred in many other countries like Australia, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, and their prices didn't crash like in the US. So it was not inevitable that our house prices had to crash. Second, house prices have now returned to the very high levels that we thought were a bubble. And I would argue that these are actually reflecting fundamentals. And we need to just get used to the fact that housing prices are going to stay high unless there's some miracle that overcomes the NIMBY problem, and we're able to build huge new housing developments in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, which I don't see that happening, but if it does, it would be great, and that would help bring housing prices down. Short of that, they're probably going to stay relatively high. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to return to inflation in a bit, but first I want to further introduce the terms uh, in in the book. Um, Market monetarism. 
Talk about what it borrows from the old modernist school, the, the Keynesian school, the, the Austrian school, or basically basically what those schools got right and, and what they got wrong and what you've, what you've taken and, and discarded in monetarism. So it mostly borrows from old monetarism with one important difference. The old monetarists focused on the so-called monetary aggregates as their indicator of monetary policy. They use terms like M1 money supply, M2 money supply. That included not just cash, but also bank deposits. And they favored targeting money supply growth at a constant rate of about 4% a year. Market monetarists worry more about velocity being unstable. So even if the money supply is growing at 4% a year, if the velocity of circulation is moving around, you can still have business cycles. So we favor targeting nominal GDP at, say, 4% a year growth or some number like that. Now, those two policies would be the same if the velocity of circulation was constant. So money supply growth of 4% would lead to nominal GDP growth of 4%. But if velocity moves around, there are different policies, and we believe targeting nominal GDP is superior. The market part of market monetarism refers to the fact that we favor using market indicators as a guide to policy. Sort of our dream policy would be to use a nominal GDP futures market so that you'd literally set monetary policy at a level where the market consensus forecast 4% growth in NGDP, nominal GDP. And uh, if, if the market started to expect faster growth, you'd tighten policy and, and vice versa if they expected lower than that. So um, instead of looking at the current money supply, we favor looking at the um, growth rate of the um, I'm sorry, market forecast of nominal GDP growth. So I would say market monetarism relies most heavily on old monetarist ideas, but there's one important contribution from what you might call the new New Keynesian camp. So uh, Paul Krugman wrote a paper in 1998 talking about how temporary monetary injections are not really very effective at the zero lower bound on interest rates. And it was a new way of thinking about liquidity traps. And it really emphasized that to get out of a liquidity trap, that is a situation where you're stuck at zero interest rates and can't cut them further, the central bank needs to commit to higher inflation in the future. He used a colorful phrase, they have to promise to be irresponsible. Like we promise to create a lot of excessive inflation in the future. And the idea was that this commitment would actually create more bullish expectations. Because if you think prices are going to rise in the future, then those zero interest rates become very lucrative, right? To borrow money and invest in assets that are going to go up in price. To use a more technical term, if you create inflation expectations at zero interest rates, you lower the real interest rate. You make the real interest rate actually negative. So that induces more uh, spending in the economy and and, uh, growth in aggregate demand. And this paper by Paul Krugman led to other work. I wrote a paper recently, which is at the Mercatus Center, a working paper on what I call the Princeton School of Macro. It includes Krugman, Bernanke is one member, Gaudi Egertsen, Michael Woodford, Lars Fenson. So I, I discussed the work of these five economists that were all at Princeton in the early 2000s. And their approach to this, you know, contributes to a lot of sort of intellectual support to this idea of level targeting that is coming back to the previous trend line when you deviate from it. And I think the biggest mistake that was made in the Great Recession was that when we had that drop in late 2008, and maybe to some extent it was unavoidable in the short run, 
there was no commitment to come back to the previous trend line. Instead, we started a new and lower trend line in 2009, much lower, in fact. And GDP was 8% below trend. That's a big, big drop. And I can't emphasize enough how that, how much that mistake hurt. Uh, by the way, Ben Bernanke is also a proponent of level targeting. And he was a proponent of something like this before he joined the Federal Reserve. But at the Fed, there wasn't enough support within the institution for him to really get that idea implemented. When he left the Fed, he wrote a paper favoring what he calls temporary uh, level targeting, which is pretty similar to what the Fed re recently did in 2020. So listeners should keep in mind that although I'm critical of what the Fed did in 2008 and 9, I don't really put all that much of the blame on Ben Bernanke, even though he was head of the Federal Reserve, because it's a very difficult institution to, to change. It has a lot of inertia. There's, yeah. There was a lot of conservative opposition to monetary stimulus within the Fed. And I think basically his ideas on macroeconomics are sound. We would have been better off if he'd been sort of a dictator where he made all the decisions and nobody else at the Fed had any input during yeah. the recession. When you think about the criticism of either nominal uh, level targeting or nominal GDP um, as, as the thing to focus on. What, what is the smartest criticism that you've heard for, for either of those things and, and how do you respond to it? Well, there's some several criticisms. One criticism is that the numbers can be revised for nominal GDP. I don't think that's an insurmountable problem. There's, there's ways of addressing that. Another criticism is that if you target nominal GDP, inflation might be more unstable. And I would break that down into two parts. To some extent, you want inflation to be a little bit unstable because inflation isn't really the right target for macroeconomic stabilization. A stable path for nominal GDP is better than a stable path for inflation. So if real GDP falls a little, inflation should rise a little to offset that. That'll help keep the labor market stable. The best argument against it probably would be there are certain types of shocks like COVID where NGDP targeting wouldn't have worked all that well in the short run. Like, I don't think it would have been wise to keep NGDP stable during the spring of last year. We shut down much of the economy for health reasons and simply pumping up aggregate demand enough so that nominal GDP was stable could only really have been done with very, very high inflation, uh, which wouldn't have had much value. But I would emphasize that the COVID recession is kind of unusual because like normally when you have a macroeconomic problem, like a recession, like the great recession, you've got a lot of people that are unemployed that we'd like to have working and they're unemployed because there's not enough demand for goods. That's a pretty easy problem to solve. You just print more money until there's enough demand for goods to have full employment, but not so much that you have excessive inflation. But during the COVID recession, in a sense, we actually wanted there to be a lot of unemployment, right? Because we were shutting things down purposely so that people wouldn't be exposed to a virus. So whether those decisions were right or wrong, that's a separate issue. But I mean, given we had made that decision as a country, in some sense, to shut down quite a few industries, targeting nominal GDP probably wouldn't have been appropriate at that point in time. So I tend to favor targeting sort of future expected nominal GDP. So what I would have done last year is said, look, inevitably NGDP is going to fall for the next few months. Let's set monetary policy where we'll get back to the trend line a year later. And lo and behold, that's what we've done, right? We're, 
We're a year later now, or a year and a half later, and the third quarter data just came in for NGDP, and we're roughly back at the trend line. Yeah. So that there are some cases where it may not work perfectly, but I think you know if you use it in a flexible way where you sort of target future expected growth in nominal GDP, it's probably the best target. Let's talk about inflation. There's there's a lot of concern in 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 my circles and tech circles. Uh, Jack Dorsey just tweeted about uh, being worried about hyperinflation. <laughs> and in the superficial analysis is you see all the money that government is printing that, that, you know, or the, that, that, you know, all the money government is spending, those numbers continue to, to climb up and on, uh, in a bipartisan way. And, and it seems that they'll only continue. And then one asks how much longer can, can this go on? There are, you know, maybe smarter takes and more nuanced take for people like Lynn Alden who say, that debt to GDP ratio is, you know, it's it's higher than it's been in some time. And, and 52 out of 53 countries that have had our debt to GDP ratio have had to inflate their debts away. T- talk about what, what you see as the smartest take for why there are concerns of, of real inflation, prolonged inflation, and, and why, why you disagree. Okay, good question. So if I was to make the pro-inflation argument, I would go back to when I was young. And I can still remember the late 60s and 1970s. And I recall that as we moved into the great inflation, which is what that's now called, we were getting the same sort of reassurances we're getting now. Oh, it's just these temporary supply problems. It's just, you know, an OPEC oil shock. It'll, it'll pass and we'll go back to normal or it's a crop failure or this or that. So I'm not really reassured by people that point to specific reasons why supply is pushing up prices. We could, in fact, have an inflation problem that's worse than I currently expect or the Fed currently expects. I think there's a reasonable chance that inflation will be a significant problem in the 2020s. On the other hand, my base forecast is still for relatively low inflation, certainly not hyperinflation, not even double-digit inflation, probably not exceeding 3% during this decade. So I'm somewhere in the middle. I think inflation is probably going to run a little bit above the Fed's target during the 2020s, but not far above. And what do I base that on? Uh, Let me take your points one at a time. So one problem with the debt to GDP ratios is that now that we're in this new world in the 21st century of far lower real interest rates, and they seem to be permanently lower, countries have decided that they can have a much larger debt because the debt service is so much less. Like think about it. I can remember when treasury bonds paid 15% interest rate uh, in, in I think 1981. So if you had a debt of 100% of GDP, you'd be spending 15% of GDP just on interest on the debt, right? Well, the whole federal government only collects about 17% of GDP in tax revenue. So that's a huge burden. But now interest rates on uh, treasury debt, even long-term bonds are around 2%. So the debt burden is just much less. Not just the US, but Europe, Japan, uh, developed countries in general have decided they're going to edge up to a larger debt to GDP ratio to take advantage of these low real interest rates. Now, maybe that'll be a mistake. And in that case, Linalda may be correct that uh, you know if, if interest rates rise a lot, we may get into a squeeze where we have to inflate our way out of it. But if you think real interest rates will stay low, and I think that's the most likely outcome because all the factors pushing rates down seem to be 
not going away soon. Let's put it that way. Um, then it's very possible that um, the debt to GDP ratio won't be quite the problem people expect, even though I personally think fiscal policy is too expansionary and I would prefer smaller budget deficits right now. So that's one point. A second point is I put a lot of weight on market forecasts. So they're not always accurate. They make mistakes. But the market forecast, I think, is the least bad forecast we have. It's, it's the wisdom of crowds argument. It's the consensus of a lot of smart people with money on the line. And if we were entering a period of high inflation persistently, I don't see why long-term interest rates would be 2%. I don't see why tip spreads, which is the, you know, the difference between the nominal and the real interest rate, would be below 3%. And by the way, the tip spread itself overestimates inflation because it refers to the consumer price index. And the, as I said, the PCE, the Fed targets, runs below the CPI. So basically, if you look at the financial markets, it seems like they're forecasting inflation a little bit above 2% over the next five or 10 years, but nothing like the worst case scenarios that are currently being forecast. We also know that during the Great Recession, a lot of the same people that worry about inflation now we're predicting high inflation from the QE1, 2, and 3 programs. That never panned out. In fact, inflation ran below 2% during the whole decade of the 2010s. So that's a little bit of a burden on that group because, and I'm not saying everybody is in the same group both times, but there is some overlap there in terms of hawkish people that worry about high inflation. So that doesn't mean it won't happen this time. And I, I do think there's some risk of inflation running above the Fed's target, but all the evidence we have uh, from the financial markets suggests that it's just not going to be like the 60s and 70s. We had 15% interest rates because people were forecasting high inflation. Uh, you know, the, it, those forecasts do affect treasury bond yields. And the fact that we're not seeing those high bond yields, <clears throat> excuse me, makes it to me unlikely we'll have that kind of inflation. And so just to zoom out, so then let's go to the other extreme. The MMTers, modern monetary theorists, who say we can print as much as we want and it won't it won't affect. Well, I guess how would we steal man? What, what is the smartest version of their argument, which might be hard to do? And then you know, how much can we print without it? it like, what is sort of the framework we could think about? You know, I think it was like six trillion or whatever the amount was. Like, could it be twenty trillion? Like, how, how do we know yeah. how much? So, we good can question. Have? So. Uh, the caveat before I start is whenever I try to explain MMT, MMTers say I get it wrong. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best on the steel man front. A lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, there's these big deficits and not a lot of inflation. That means MMT is correct. And I think that's um, kind of an odd way of looking at things. I mean, maybe there's some truth in that. But my understanding is that the MMT theory of inflation is that when inflation is high, it's due to the fact that uh, fiscal policy is too expansionary. And I say that because MMTers will typically say the way to address high inflation is with a tax increase, not with a tight money policy, right? So if you're going to argue that the way to address high inflation is with a tax increase to pull money out of the economy that way through fiscal austerity, then logically speaking, if there is high inflation, it's caused by an excessively expansionary fiscal policy in some sense. Although I think the MMTers will say sometimes inflation is caused by supply shocks as well. So I don't want to oversimplify the model. But let's say it's demand side inflation. They would blame fiscal policy, according to my understanding. I believe their view is that 
monetary policy doesn't really affect much of anything because you're just swapping money for bonds. And that doesn't really change anything with the public, doesn't make the public richer or poorer, right? You you inject a trillion dollars in new money and you buy back a trillion dollars in bonds, you've just replaced one government asset with another. So the fiscal, the um, MMTers argue that monetary policy just doesn't have much effect. And that's sort of a some sort of a fiscal theory of the price level, as far as I understand their model. Um, so I don't agree with the model. I think monetary policy is actually far more powerful than fiscal policy. And I could cite numerous historical examples of where the two go in opposite directions and, and money is clearly much more powerful. Just mention a couple in Japan, when Abe's government took over in 2013, they had expansionary monetary, contractionary fiscal, and immediately nominal GDP started rising and the economy improved in Japan. That's the opposite of what would have happened if MMT had been correct. The Reagan period with the expansionary fiscal and um, contractionary monetary inflation slowed down, didn't speed up. 1968, President Johnson raised taxes to slow inflation. Monetary policy was expansionary. Inflation actually went up. He even balanced the budget in the middle of the Vietnam War. Inflation still went up because fiscal policy just doesn't address inflation. It's, it's, it's a process driven by monetary policy. So I don't agree with the MMT model, but my understanding is it's a, a basically kind of a fiscal theory of inflation with some supply shocks also playing a role at times. Yeah. And so... Was it six trillion that was recently? Well, I'm not sure that I think that includes what's expected, maybe uh, with the current the two bills that Biden is okay. trying to get through. Yeah. I think these two bills are expected to be close to three trillion. And we had some fiscal stimulus towards the end of the Trump administration and during the post-election period. I don't remember the exact dates. Yeah. That was pretty substantial. So probably all those together would be about six. And so let let's say that. So is the thesis here that that number won't get as high as, you know, won't significantly increase? Let's say, let's imagine like 15 or, or 20. Um, or is it um, is it that even if it does increase, that the Fed has the tools to prevent inflation, no matter how much irresponsibility uh, happens at the fiscal level or, or otherwise? Well, the Fed definitely has the tool to prevent inflation. I think almost all economists, except maybe MMTers, would agree with that. I mean, if you pull enough money out of the economy, you're eventually going to squeeze aggregate demand and reduce inflation. So it's like a reverse QE process that no matter how, how much. Yeah. Got it. And, and have we have we done that? No, they haven't. They've been adding money to the economy. Yeah. They're still the, 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 the current discussion about the Fed perhaps tapering its purchases tomorrow. In fact, I believe this might occur is just a proposal that they slow down the rate at which they're expanding reserves and system. Now, if you want to know why this isn't having the sort of effect it would have had in the 20th century, there's a very simple explanation, or actually two explanations. One is they now pay interest on bank reserves. So these reserves, when they go into the economy, the banks often just sit on them because they earn as much on the reserves as they were earning on the bonds they sold to the Fed to acquire those reserves. In addition, when interest rates fall close to zero, there's much less um, of a velocity of circulation. The money tends to sit there as reserves and not get spent as it would if interest rates were positive. So back in the 20th century, when let's say interest rates were 5%, 
the Fed would put zero interest rate reserves into the banking system. The banks didn't want to sit on those zero interest reserves. They could earn 5%. So they would quickly push the money out into the economy and it would eventually go into currency and circulation and that would stimulate aggregate demand and prices would rise. But in the 21st century, the combination of either zero interest rates in the market or when rates are positive, like in 2018 and 2019, the Fed was paying interest on bank reserves. That makes the policy uh, less inflationary than it was before. Yeah, makes sense. And so we talked about MT years. Let's talk about the Austrians. You know, Austria, you, you mentioned earlier, they sort of in, in visualized the economy as a, you know, a series of booms and busts and, and sort of this moral tale of, you know, the person who gets drunk and, and needs, you know, is sort of re- reckless and, and thus needs to suffer as a result. And if only there he was uh, or she was more um, measured, then uh, the uh, the economy would 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 have less booms and busts, perhaps. Is it just that the Austrian theory, like the MMT, while maybe sounds nice, just doesn't hold, hold true? Or what would you say to the Austrians? Well, I, I have more sympathy for the Austrian school than the MMT school. I think of it as kind of in some ways, almost like a mirror image of the Keynesian school. So I sometimes like to use a geographical analogy. You can think of a business cycle, how it would look on a piece of graph paper as a ups and downs, right? The line goes up in the boom and down in recessions. So there's your business cycle. So the question is, what causes that? Do we have that up and down because we have a normal time and then other times we have excess piled on top of what's normal? Or do you have a normal time and then you fall below that normal? The geographical analogy would be, imagine a flat featureless plain like Kansas. You could create an unstable geographical situation by putting mountains here and there or cutting deep canyons here or there. Either one would produce in geography what looks like a business cycle on a graph paper. So when the Keynesians think about the business cycle, they think in terms of recessions, like cutting canyons into a flat plane, like we were going along perfectly normal, and then we fell into this deep trench. That's a recession. Austrians think about the business cycle as, well, we're going along perfectly normal, and then we had overstimulus the economy. We had all this malinvestment produced by the Fed setting interest rates too low, causing wasteful projects to be built. And then eventually there was a day of reckoning because we couldn't really in the long run make profits off of those investments. And we contracted in reaction to that over exuberance. So there's two ways of sort of thinking about a business cycle. You can think about it as occasional periods of not enough spending or occasional periods of too much spending. And I'm obviously I'm oversimplifying here, but the Austrians, they tend to think of it in terms of, you know, overspending leading to a relapse. Keynesians think of boom times as sort of like normal, like it should always be like that, right? The economy should always have low unemployment, should always be booming in some sense. Now, that's a little unfair to both schools of thought. Keynesians know you can overstimulate the economy and have excessive inflation. And Austrians know that even in a period of normal time, you could have an excessively contractionary monetary policy that causes a depression. Rather, I would say it's a difference in emphasis the Austrians tend to focus more on the mistakes made during the booms, which leads, in their view, to malinvestment. And the Keynesians tend to focus more on what they see as excessively contractionary policies that might lead to recession. 
Or maybe the Keynesians would focus on the market system as just being inherently unstable, but then the policymakers not doing enough to prevent recessions when this instability occurs. So there's there's a lot of nuances here, and I can't obviously describe both theories in all of the detail at, the, at that level, but that gives you a little bit of an insight into how they differ in their way of approaching the business cycle. Yeah. A mental model they often have is, is ever since 1971, when we left the gold standard for real, we've just had this reckless spending and that's what's caused all of these or often, you know, made things worse. And, and the challenges we don't have the counterfactual to determine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I would rather divide it up into more periods than they would. So there was the high inflation period of the mid 60s to the early 80s. And, you know, the Austrians are certainly right about all the excessive monetary stimulus during that period. We actually didn't have a very expansionary fiscal policy during that period, by the way. But I would say that, you know, since um, the early 80s, the inflation rate has come down pretty sharply and is, you know, in recent decades, averaged roughly 2%. So I don't really think the macroeconomic outcome has been all that poor since the early 1980s. I mean, the Great Recession was certainly bad, but we've had lots of other bad things throughout our history. Yeah. Not just the Great Depression of the 1930s. You know, there was a pretty bad depression in the 1890s, and there's there's been other downturns throughout our history. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're trying to ask me, you know, do I agree that we have all these problems because of excessive stimulus? I would say no. There, there's really no evidence for that. If the Fed had kept nominal GDP growing at a decent rate after 2006 and seven, we would have probably done reasonably well. The Australian central bank kept their nominal GDP growing. They didn't have a recession in 2008. So, you know, it, it it's really depends on policy. Yeah. And so what would need to be true for you to worry that inflation is going to get higher than 3% in this decade, aside from the sort of long tail, uh, you know, market signals that you indicated earlier, and aside from interest rates, real interest rates rising. Is there anything else? Well, that would be the thing that would concern me most. But if if you want specific factors, so if you if I put on a hat as a market participant and had to judge for myself rather than just inferring from the market, I would look for signs that the Fed was going back to 1960s era thinking, like it was concluding that it could permanently reduce unemployment with an expansionary monetary policy. And you do sometimes see statements from Fed officials that are a little bit worrisome on those grounds. So if they return to sort of a mental model of the economy that was similar to what, P- what the Fed had in the 1960s, that would be a cause for concern. Yeah. I suppose that fiscal policy at some point could become so reckless that the Fed would be sort of politically forced to monetize the debt. I don't think we're there, but I suppose that could happen at some point in the future. Uh, like what is the line by which they can no longer just take money out of the economy, the reverse QE we were talking about earlier versus they have to now monetize the debt. Like how does, how do we think about that line? Well, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. So you mean, what, what, what does it look like to monetize the debt or or, or when does it want to do that? When does it get so bad that you have to monetize it? When the required tax increases to avoid default from not monetizing. 
are so large that the politicians feel that the easy way out is to somehow pressure the Fed to create inflation instead. Now, let me emphasize something. This is not why we had the great inflation. We did not run big budget deficits during the Vietnam War. We just didn't. I know that's in the history books that we did, but it's false. Yeah. You can look at, look at, all you have to do is have your listeners you know, look up something like debt to GDP ratio throughout American history on, on the Federal Reserve website, FRED, F-R-E-D. Uh, you can confirm for yourself. Uh, we ran a budget surplus in the worst year of the Vietnam War, 1968-69. So if we were to monetize the debt for political reasons, it would basically be pretty much the first time in American history, maybe outside the Civil War. But it could happen. Right. It's it certainly happened in countries, you know, I don't know, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, places like that. And when that happens, you often get hyperinflation because to really have it effective as a long-term solution to your fiscal problems, you can't just have a little bit of inflation. Like that won't help very much. You have to have a lot of inflation. Yeah. And that's also politically difficult. And that's one reason I think I sort of disagree with the prediction you mentioned of Lynn Alden, the to really make debt monetization useful to the government in a big way, it's not enough to have 5 10% inflation. You've got to be talking about 100%, 500%, 1,000% inflation, those kind of numbers. Those will make a big difference in terms of bringing in revenue for the government. Let's focus on interest rates for a second, because there are people who, who say that those interest rates have been artificially suppressed. What is the smartest argument for why that could be the case? And, and why do you feel so confident that actually, this is the new normal. Well, if they're artificially suppressed, I mean, interest rates have been falling, you know, globally in real terms for 40 years. That's a very, very powerful trend. Every economic model I'm aware of says that if you artificially suppressed that trend, you'd have hyperinflation within a few years, not 40 years, within a few years. So we've had this downtrend for 40 years. I don't know of any model that suggests you could just suppress that by printing money without creating hyperinflation almost immediately. So no, I'm I'm convinced that the uh, the, the trend is is real. It's 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 meaningful. There are reasons for it. It's global. It's not just in the United States. It's in almost every developed country in the world. Yeah, maybe gearing towards towards closing here. What do you expect to to learn in the next few years as, as uh, that will inform the future of market monetarism? Like what what experiments? And, and by the way, that, that's been one critique that I've heard from some, some of the people in just about macro in general is that there's no controlled experiments. And so in the same way that, or in a similar way, you know, in the USSR, right, they had their own theory of economics under sort of the Soviet, like communist economics, <laughs> effectively, that you had the smartest people in the country, but ultimately the premises were, were, were flawed, that similarly, maybe there's a chance in macro that because there's just no controlled experiments, you know, maybe, maybe the maybe the premises aren't as as sturdy. Um, what would you say to that to that critique? And 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 what do you think? Just looking forward, you know, what's going to be answered, or, or where are we going to learn? All right, so I, I do have some sympathy for that. It's, it's it's not impossible to test macro theories, but it's hard, and it's hard to get really clear, definitive tests. I think there's a lot of interesting natural experiments, and um, let me just point out one little example that your listeners might want to think about. You mentioned how MM, you mentioned MMT. So they deny that the Fed has any control over inflation, as far as I know. They don't think monetary policy does anything really. 
Now, the Fed set a 2% inflation target about a decade ago, and really 30 years ago, informally, they started targeting inflation at 2%. Everybody knew it. So even if you go back to the 1990s, that was widely understood to be the Fed's policy. Now, since the early 1990s, inflation has averaged around 2%, very close to 2%. And that's not like typical of American history. So that's not something that just like normally happens. Uh, for much of American history, inflation averaged zero. For other decades, it averaged 5 10% a year. It's been all over the map. But since the Fed started targeting inflation at around 2%, it's been averaging around 2%. Now, there's two schools of thought on that. One is that it just sort of like was luck and that the real reason inflation is 2% is that somebody else made that happen, like Congress through astute fiscal policy. I don't even think that pass, passes the laugh test. You know, like Congress, what did they do to create the 2% inflation? Right. So I think the most sensible explanation is that the Fed actually has the ability to keep inflation around 2% if they want. And if inflation were to average 10% or negative five over the next decade, I would re really have to reevaluate my view that the Fed is controlling inflation, has the ability to control inflation. But if inflation over the next 10, 20, 30 years continues to average 2%, I think that's a pretty good piece of evidence that my theory that the Fed controls inflation is correct. And the MMT theory that the Fed has no ability to control inflation at all is simply wrong. It's too much to ask that it would coincidentally come in at the number that they're targeting over decades at a time on average. So yeah, I, it's hard to test macro theories, but you know, I, I do think we know some things about the macro economy. There's a lot of sort of natural experiments that have occurred, yeah. things that have been done by policymakers that have had effects that you can see. My preference is to look at financial market reactions to policy announcements. I think they tell us a lot about what effects those policies are likely to have. What is the, the people with money on the line? What do they think coming out of it? If you don't think the financial markets are efficient, you can get rich betting against my theory, right? Yeah. If they are efficient, then it's hard to get rich. And if they are efficient, then those financial market reactions to policy initiatives should provide us with the best evidence we have about the effectiveness of those policies. Yeah. Of course, there's always the vice versa critique too, which is if macroeconomists are, are so good at predicting the future, why aren't they rich? And is, is, that, is, your, is your answer more of a practical one of they just don't choose to or they don't? No, our theory, our theory is that you can't get rich. I mean, the efficient market hypothesis, be careful, you can't get rich with assurance by implementing your theories because markets are efficient. Got it. Right. So the standard theory in finance is basically that people that get rich by, you know, investing are, are mostly lucky. <laughs> maybe there's some, you know, exceptions. It's not a perfect theory, you know, maybe, you know, Warren Buffett was smarter than the average stock investor, but, you know, generally speaking, the efficient market hypothesis says the market prediction is the efficient forecast. And you, you can't make a lot of money by just going into the market and trading based on some economic theory out of a textbook, that the market prices already incorporate the implications of that economic theory. So the only way you can really get rich by beating the market is if you're sort of smarter than economists as a whole, right? So if economists are wrong, and there's some other theory beyond Keynesian, monetarist, market monetarists, Austrian, et cetera, that's actually the true theory. And you discover that theory and no one else knows it. Maybe you can trade on that economic insight and get rich. But 
I, I'm very skeptical that that's something that's you know at all feasible for most people. Yeah, but on on the inflation part, is it possible that something? Because how do you explain technology being so deflationary and yet infl- inflation staying staying the same? Like, is there is there something that's technology is not that deflationary? Oh, I'll right. explain why. Technology is very very deflationary for certain tech sector things. And those are the things that fall in price rapidly, right? Like, you know, computers of a given amount of computing power fall in price rapidly. But so much of our economy is services that the overall rate of productivity growth in the economy is really only, what, you know, one or 2% a year, even if the productivity growth in computer chips is very, very rapid due to Moore's law. I mean, computer chips are just not that big a part of GDP to create a lot of deflation in the overall consumer price index. Most yeah, of yeah. you know prices is the cost of haircuts and cost of education and healthcare and all these labor-intensive industries. Yeah, and so d- did I show you uh, Balaji's inflation uh, sort of bounty for correct measures of because his prediction or his assertion is that inflation is being measured incorrectly. Yeah, I don't believe. Well, inflation is certainly being measured incorrectly, and in that no index is perfect. But if you're talking about theories that inflation is not actually two percent, it's over the last decade, it's you know um, five, ten percent. Those are nonsensical theories because if that were true, then given the rate of nominal GDP growth, we would have had rapidly falling real GDP. Yeah. In other words, we would have gone through a Great Depression, right? But the public clearly doesn't believe that. So- I mean, it's it, it's funny. This is this is not just idle conversation in our industry because. In the venture industry, we've had the, you know a bull run for quite some time. Even two years ago, Sequoia, the best venture capital firm, you know had a paper something along the lines of "RIP good times," and you know people should cut back. And even still, we had a bull run. And right now, there's more money being flowed into uh, flowed into startups uh, at higher valuations, higher prices, and and everyone's asking how much longer can this last? When, when will the music stop? And so if they're listening to you, maybe you know, listening to this conversation, maybe they're thinking, oh, maybe it can keep going for, for quite some time. Well, let me, let me answer it this way by using the 2000 bubble in tech, right? I don't think that was a bubble, but clearly tech stocks crashed in 2001 and two, right? Yep. So how can I defend my claim that it was not a bubble? Well, the peak of the NASDAQ in 2000 was a 5,000 peak on NASDAQ, right? Well, it's over 15,000 now. So it's not so much that like people said at the time, well, those stock valuations only make sense if you think those little internet companies are eventually going to dominate the whole US economy. Ha, 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 ha. Well, now, of course, the stock market is dominated by the tech companies, right? And of course, then people say, but yeah, most of them failed. All right. But in an efficient market, you buy a whole portfolio. And if, if a few of them hit, you can make up for 10 failures for each success, right? That's efficient markets. So I would argue both that in some sense, the market was kind of rational in 2000 to be optimistic about tech, but also there was a rare, very real prospect of a cyclical downturn. Like, okay, these things go in waves and there are going to be some periods where they do better than others. So I think it's both very plausible that the current prices are rational, given what we know now. And it's also possible we'll have a big drop in the stock market at some point in the future. 
both of those things could be true. And then maybe some point even more distant in the future, a recovery in the stock market. So I don't think it has to be either or. I think there's there can be a danger that the current boom will turn into a downturn. I can't predict that either way. But it could also be true that the market is in some sense rational, given what we know now about where interest rates are and earnings you know, trajectories and so on. And There's a the, huge amount of uncertainty in tech. Yeah. You really don't know. The implication there is that even if there is a, a bubble that, um, you know, just to be long tech basically, and to be long on uh, enough uh, assets within tech that you can, uh, you know, diversify from those, then that a small amount will pay for the. For yeah, the that's true. And think of bubble, think of bubble in two ways. There are certainly bubbles in the sense of ups and downs in markets that sense there's bubbles. Are there bubbles in the sense that times we know that it's overvalued, even in real time, it's obviously overvalued? I'm not so sure because when you look back at 2000 in tech and 2006 in housing, we were so confident they were overvalued. But now that they've come back, maybe we're not so sure. Yeah. Or we were, you know, when when Bitcoin crashed a few years ago, we were, well, there was the bubble, right? But then it's gone even higher. So these things are always provisional. We, yeah. we never have the last word on what assets are worth because the future is always uncertain. That's a great place to wrap. Do you uh, do you know what your you've just released this, this book a few months ago? Do you know what your your next book will, will be on? Um, I don't have anything really to report. Um, so um, I might do a collection of my papers. But uh, if if anybody wanted a masochist wanted to go beyond. Uh, my current book, I have an older book on the Great Depression, which is actually my best book in a quality sense. It's more scholarly. Um, if you're interested in the Great Depression, you could look at my book. Is the Midas Paradox? Called the Midas Paradox. And uh, I'll, beyond that, I have a paper on the Princeton School, which is at the Mercatus Center website, working paper, which I think is kind of an interesting paper. I'm kind of proud of that one. But um, yeah. anyway, that's about it. Yeah, that, that's the that's the one that details how Bernanke and Krugerman uh, had these ideas before the Great Recession, and then sort of changed over time, and then have. Yeah, it it it, it kind of traces the evolution of their thought. I, I often criticized, you know, Krugman in my blog, but his 1998 paper, I argue, is actually underrated. It's one of the key macro papers of the last 40 years. Yeah. So I explain why I think it's so important and how that whole school of thought gave us the understanding of monetary policy that ultimately led to the Fed doing a lot better this time around than during the Great Recession. I also read somewhere that market monetarism is the first sort of, you know, school of thought that has uh, began on the blog, on the blogosphere. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's been fun to trace that evolution. And, and I feel like it'll only become more, more popular, more prominent in the, in the years to come. So uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.